Like King George III in Hamilton, in ancient Rome, during festivals, gatherings, um, even in sporting events, an official with the empire would stand up and they would shout. And there would be fanfare, maybe trumpets or something like that, but somebody would shout something. Um, and, and they would shout something like, Hear what Caesar says. Hear what the emperor says. Hear what Domitian says. And then the emperor would stand up and proclaim the good and the bad things he saw from governors, from leaders, from people of the regions and city that they represent. Now, the reason that this is important is because with absolute brilliance, John, who is the writer of Revelation, the book that we're studying, creates a sort of parodies of these imperial edicts at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And it's very much like what happens in Hamilton with the king. This very serious um, declaration, this very serious edict, you know, a message from the king is turned into this parody, into this laugh out loud, laughable moment that kind of mocks at the king. And, and this, was, this isn't something that's unique to us. It's not something unique to something we do in our uh, art, in our books, and in our, um, in our movies. This is something that has been around a long time, this idea of satire. And so even if you go back in, in history, the king would have had satire associated with the things that he did. Um, you know, we see this all the time, satire with, with elected officials and things like that, but they did it with the kings. And you can all go all the way back in history, and this idea of satire, this idea of parody, was a part of, of culture back then. And so if you look at this idea that these emperors would present these edicts, what we find is we find here in Revelation, John, in this long history of satire and parody, doing the same thing, creating a parody of these imperial edicts at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Listen what it says. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, this is important for us to understand because seeing what John is doing here reminds us what kind of book we're looking at and reading when we study Revelation. I talked about this a little bit last week, but this is so important, guys. Revelation is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted books in all of Scripture, and it's caused all kinds of issues because people have used Revelation in all kinds of ways to warn about the end of days, to invite people to buy their books, to read their stuff that, that uses it as sort of a kind of a code book to say, hey, look at our world, here's what's happening. And they try to create this idea that they're telling you that this is the end of the world and here's what's happening. People for a long time, they've used this ancient letter to claim to know what the symbols mean, and they, they try to relate this to current events. It's a dangerous idea. And when I say people, 
honestly, one of the things that I use, and I, and I read this somewhere else, is that they, they use the word grifters. People who are just taking advantage of. I think there's some people who probably uh, have certain interpretations that are doing it honestly, but the problem is the misinterpretation. And this is one of those places where um, I'm going to draw a hard line on interpretation here. Because the danger of the misinterpretation of this book, it's catastrophic in terms of our faith, in our theology, in the way we look at and understand who we are in this world, who God is in this world, and what the people around us are in this world. Having a misinterpretation of revelation can cause all kinds of issues, and it is so critical, so important for us to stop and to pause and to say that we, we're not going to read it that way and in that direction. And I was pretty hard on this last week as well, and I want to be again about that. I want us to have an understanding of this that helps us to see it. Now, scholars around the world look at this book and understand and help us to see and warn us of the temptation. They warn us of the temptation to see it as a secret code book. But it's not a secret code book. So what is it? If it's not some kind of secret code book trying to tell us what's going on in our world today, what kind of book is it? And what can we learn from it? Well, as I talked about last week, Revelation is a form of apocalyptic literature. And that's critical to understand as we study it. Apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature, like Revelation, is a form of writing. And I'm going to quote, meant to sustain the people of God, especially in times of crisis. It creates hope by offering a scathing critique of the oppressors, passionate exhortations to defiance, and unfailing confidence in God's ultimate defeat of the present evil. Now, that quote is an academic way of saying that the book is a mix of political satire, protest language, and a call to have an alternative vision of the world. Now, if you don't learn anything else today, or in this series that we're looking at, I really hope that you'll learn this. Because learning this helps us understand the book of Revelation in ways that are often missed. And it's so critical. Listen to that again. Revelation is political satire, protest language, and a call to have an alternative vision of the world. Now that's so different. That is so different than this idea of trying to see Revelation as a lens into current events as an end times uh, picture that's trying to have some kind of secret code book to have us guess what's going on. That's, that's not what's happening here. John, the writer of this book, while the church was under intense persecution, had confessed that Jesus was Lord. Now that's central. He had confessed that Jesus was Lord. And when he said that, when people in the in the time of the New Testament, when the early first century church, when they said Jesus is Lord, what they're saying was that the empire, that Caesar was not Lord. And that's confusing to us because we're not in that world. We're not in that uh, understanding of things. We don't typically get that. But in that time period, to say that Jesus was Lord was a huge statement. 
that had all kind of political ramifications. It, it was a statement of saying, look, Caesar, who would say, who used this phrase, Caesar is Lord. Imagine that, living in that kind of realm. That Caesar believed he was Lord. The people believed he was Lord. And so they had this phrase, Caesar is Lord. Instead, these early Christians would say, Jesus is Lord. And it was a political statement. It was a statement of where their allegiance lied. So John, because of this, was exiled to the prison island of Patmos. And he tells us that. He says, he says that I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So what he's saying is he used these phrases, he said these things, and he was sent to this island. From there, he wrote these words, an allegory for the political scene at the time of its writing, meant to show Christians, and listen to this, the absurdity, the absolute absurdity of allegiance to the Roman Empire instead of to Jesus. And he begins this with this incredible take on these royal edicts. And I love this. And it made me think of that clip from Hamilton, that he uses something that people are so familiar with, and he just twists it just enough to make people see something in a different way, in a different light, to understand something in a little bit different way. Now listen to this royal edict. This is Revelation 1. We're going to read nine, verse 9 again, starting there. We're going to go all the way to 20. I, John... Your brother and companion, the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theotira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was something like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, his face like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and will what take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, this kind of language, this poetic, mysterious, uh, symbolic language, this is the language of apocalyptic literature. It is an invitation into the mysterious. It is an invitation into symbol and metaphor. Uh, um, it is an invitation to, to read something and begin to see something in a different way. And all of these things stand for something within the context and the time in which it was written. And what follows then, after this part here, are seven letters written to seven churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And it's written in the style of these royal edicts. Many scholars agree here that the word angels that he uses, he says seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, which 
sounds like weird, confusing language, but many scholars agree that the angels is metaphor language for pastor-type leaders. The people who would read these letters. Now, here's what's amazing about these. These leaders of these churches would have the task of reading these letters out loud. And each of the churches then got to read each of these other churches' dirty laundry as they were taken to task. Again, just like the royal edicts. Now, at some point in the future, I would love to walk through each of these seven letters kind of in a sermon series on its own. But what I want us to do this morning is I want us to focus on the final letter that was written because it gives us a challenge of how we can view the other six. Again, remember this series is an overview of this entire book. So I encourage you to go back and read Revelation 1 all the way through 3 with this lens of political satire, of this lens of apocalyptic literature on as you read it. But listen to these words today, and let's see what we can learn from this. He says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and a salve to put in your eyes so you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, like always, let's peel back some layers. Let's see what we've got here, and let's find what this may have to say to us today. Now, Laodicea was known for many things, but one thing it was known, well, one thing it did not have was good water. To the north were hot springs, and there were aqueducts that came from those hot springs that brought this water to Laodicea, and you can still see those aqueducts today. But by the time the water reached the city, the water that was in those aqueducts had turned to just tepid, lukewarm water. So imagine this. Here sits Laodicea, and here to the north are these hot springs. And this water comes from these hot springs through these aqueducts. And you can imagine the people that built them thought they were bringing this incredible, amazing water to the city. But by the time the water had reached the city, it was lukewarm. It wasn't anything anymore. And remember, it also came from hot springs. Well, hot springs, if you've been around hot springs, you know that they don't really smell all that great. It reminds me of French Lick, if you've ever been down to French Lick before, and you've been through the different springs that they had down there, and the people would come and drink the water. It smells absolutely terrible. So these people had this water that was lukewarm, and it also smelled terrible. But that wasn't the only water that they got. There was also water to the south of the city, about 11 miles away on Mount Cadmus. Now, this mountain was snow-capped, 
and the streams that fled, that led from it were filled with fantastic spring water, all that kinds of spring water that we bottle up today and sell. It was good tasting, cool uh, water, and people loved to drink from the springs. But again, imagine this 11 miles away, these springs traveling all the way through this Middle Eastern air coming into the city. And by the time they came into the city, this cold water was no longer cold. It was no longer tasty. It was gross and it was lukewarm. So what he is saying is this. He is saying that the Laodicean Christians have faith like their water. They have a divided heart and a lukewarm faith. Their commitment to the way of Jesus has just become another part of their life instead of the defining aspect of their life. It's a perfect metaphor for these people and for their faith and for all those who read it. Their lifestyle created a consumerism, a consumerism mindset that impacted their faith. They have stopped relying on God, and now that those things are tough, they have a faith that is in danger of not standing up to the reality of the crisis they faith. And this is a great reminder for us today. We can't just turn on our faith. And we can't just turn off our faith. We can't just turn it off and on like some kind of switch and hope that it works. That's the central message of these seven letters. But John tells the people it's not too late to change their mindset, to end their lukewarm faith, and to invite Jesus into their lives in a new and fresh way. Like a royal edict, John ends this letter in the other letters with these words. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This was the language of the royal edict. You don't just hear those words, you do something about what was said to you. These letters focused on people who had become lackadaisical about their love of Jesus and his message, who chose consumerism over sacrifice, became indifferent to the teachings of Jesus, failed to see how faith impacted all aspects of life, they ignored injustice, they put themselves and their needs as the primary goal of life. In the book of Revelation, it's ultimately the love affair with the way of empire that competes for the heart of the faithful. The same lines are drawn for every generation, any empire. Whether that empire is an actual country with borders or merely the borders we create when we try to create our own kind of kingdom, carving out a life on our own. And the question that I've asked you before, that I'll ask you again in light of this, is are you creating your own kingdom? Or are you choosing to be a part of what God is doing in this world? Are you creating your own kingdom right now? Are you trying to carve out your own kingdom and your own empire? Or are you taking part in what God is doing in this world? You see, Revelation is not a description of the end of the world. It's about the dangers of the church. Those of us who follow Jesus, being seduced by the love of a comfortable life, provided by the power of the day, and losing focus on the power of our faith.
Those are kind of statements that I write in my notes that I want to read to you again. I want you to hear it again. Revelation is about the dangers of the church. Those of us who follow Jesus being seduced by the love of a comfortable life provided by the power of the day. Losing on the focus on the power of our faith. So here's some questions for us. What would happen if we chose to confront the reality we live in? What if we pushed back against the temptation of consumerism, injustice, and indifference? What if we recognize the places that we've allowed our faith to become lukewarm and instead ignited a revival within our hearts that would overflow into our family, our community, and our world? Going back to my Hamilton illustration from the beginning of this sermon that opened it up, the king threatened to send armies, war, and violence to keep his people in line to remind them of his love. Domitian, the most likely emperor during the time that Revelation was written, and emperors of all eras have used similar language. But I would tell us today that, you know, maybe we don't have emperors like that demanding our love and our allegiance. But we do tell ourselves lies of fear And we tell ourselves lies of uncertainty to justify our consumerism and our indifference that is so antithetical to the ways of Jesus. I I just want to say that to be clear because I want to make this connect for us. As we read this ancient book, I want you to see what is so powerful about this in your story and in my story. That this is a call to have hope. This is a call to have faith. This is a call to have trust. This is a call to ask you, where does your allegiance lie? And he says here this idea, you know, that we, we tell ourselves all kind of lies. That these emperors lied. These emperors weren't saying true things. They say, listen, believe the fear of violence and war and give your allegiance to me. But we tell ourselves that all the time. We give ourselves an allegiance to consumerism. We give ourselves an allegiance to our own kingdoms because we're fearful or we have uncertainty. And then we justify. We justify being lukewarm people because we decide that somehow we have to justify the idea of consumerism and indifference and creating our own spaces, creating our own borders, creating our own kingdom. And it's all a lie. See, the invitation to followers of Jesus uses very different language. It's not the language of fear and uncertainty or violence. It's an invitation of love. And today, through familiar words, you're invited to a new way of seeing the world, putting your love and trust in Jesus as first in your life. Listen to these words of invitation. This edict 
from the real king. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's pray. God, we thank you today. Father, for this letter that teaches us what it means to have allegiance to you. To hear this edict that is often in our hearts of fear and of uncertainty. To put our trust in something else. God, help us to see through those lies. Help us to have ears that hear and to put our trust and our hope in you. It's your name that we pray today. Amen. Priests is what John says. Meaning we represent and tell the story of God to the world. We don't just have obedience, faith, and trust. We invite others into that journey. As we show that in our lives, especially during times when our anxiety is at an 11. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't know what the next days, the next weeks, the next month, the next year, what it's going to look like. I do know that we've seen over the past few days, things get a little more hairy here with the coronavirus here in Indiana. We've seen things rise to a level we haven't yet seen. The medical community is warning us about this wave and what that's going to look like. I've read stories about the places in Europe that are beginning to lock down to try to get control of this. And that's not to put a negative spin on today. That's not to tell you not to find joy in life. It's to remind us that we're here. And in our lives, we don't know what's next. And in our lives, we could get here. Most of us, because of the way we live, I think we live at a high level of anxiety. We fill our lives up with all kinds of things. We put a lot of stress on ourselves. And then something kicks in, something happens. And that anxiety level goes up one more level. A level we didn't think could exist. And what we're going to find in Revelation, and what we find in this greeting, in this opening, is that Jesus is the king. And that in this time, we're to have trust and obedience and faith. And we can trust that we can follow him. So let's pray together. God, I thank you for this letter. I thank you over the next few weeks as we dig into this, as we see what's happening here and what what is taking place with these people who lived so long ago, God, But Father, we're reminded that they follow Jesus just like we follow Jesus. And God, it is through their witness, through their story, through their experience that we learn to follow Jesus today. We thank you for these books that we find in Scripture, for these letters, for this God, this genre we call apocalyptic literature. We thank you that this has uh, been kept and has been uh, passed down that comes to us today, something that we can look back at 
we can understand how does this apply in our lives? And what does it mean to follow Jesus here in this moment today as we reflect on how people followed you in their experience? God, help us over the next few days, the next week, the next month, the next year to follow you, to trust in you, to have faith. It's your name we pray. Amen.